1: I'm April Voki and you're listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. For decades, Mike Taylor has been involved in pre-hospital emergency care, focusing on remote and wilderness medicine. As director of operations and co-founder of Finn's West, He's provided remote medical services from Mount Everest to Antarctica. Kalo guides for several fly fishing outfitters spanning Colorado all the way to Chile. In this episode of Anchored, Kalo shares how his passion for fishing, paired with his profession as a wilderness and remote paramedic, made a business unlike any other in the fly fishing industry. If you haven't already checked out anchoredoutdoors.com, it's probably time that you do. Anchored Outdoors combines education, community, and accessibility all in a sequential system that's fun and easy to follow. I know that free content is everywhere these days, but that doesn't make it accurate or trustworthy. I also know that you'd prefer to spend your time on the water instead of figuring out who and what to trust which is why we cut straight to the chase and do it for you with step-by-step guides, renowned instructors you've come to know and love from the show, our ever-growing library, interactive events, and even our fun point system that lets you earn up to $200 in premium points. We've got all sorts of exciting new surprises around the corner, including a members-only podcast, so you can listen to our classes and content while you drive. Find out more at anchoredoutdoors.com.
2: I was born in western North Carolina. So in in a small town called Elkin, just down from I'd say the closest place that people would know is probably the Boone Asheville area in the mountains.
1: Oh, it's beautiful over there. I love
2: Asheville. It's a it's a cool place. And ironically I'm here on the coast now.
1: Okay, so you never left I mean, is that the South? Are we calling that the South?
2: Oh yeah. I mean we're yeah. It's North Carolina. It's about as south as you can get. Proper south. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I remember years ago, I did an event down there and driving through the beautiful mountains, the, the Appalachians. I think I used to call it Appalachian and I was corrected. <laughs> I, and remember, I was coming off of living for a year in Arkansas, so I was pretty comfortable with the South. And I was seeing houses with Confederate flags and all sorts of new things that uh, this Canadian girl had never seen before. Is it still very much like that? I don't want to go into a rabbit hole. I mean, I've just pressed record, but is it still very um, Southern or has it come a long way over the last decade or so? Yeah,
2: I think it depends on where you are, right? Cause a lot of folks, I mean, again, I moved away for 30 years and came back, but a lot of folks are coming to the coast and mountains of North Carolina So there's little pockets of change, but yeah, it's, it's, the little pockets are still there. There's the house, there's several houses down the river here that are throwing the the Confederate flag for sure.
1: It was an experience. So where did you go for 30 years?
2: I've been, I was in Colorado for most of that and lived in Montana for about five of those 30
1: Okay. Okay. So what brought you there? And I mean, I guess I'm kind of starting in the middle and we'll backtrack to the very beginning, but just out of curiosity while we're there, why did you end up moving? What I guess you guys would say out West.
2: Yeah. Out West is good. Um, at the climbing, um, the paddling, the skiing, I mean, I've done it here in North Carolina. It's a great place, but not like everybody, but like everybody just bigger, is better. So, and I couldn't, I couldn't get a foothold here, which is a whole another story. So, Headed out west and, and yeah, and stayed. (laughs)
1: Let me back you up to where you really started fishing. Did you get started in fishing or did you start in climbing, rafting? Where was your beginning?
2: Yeah, you know, our family, we did. I mean, we're from the mountains of North Carolina, so we definitely fished and hunted and did nothing huge. I mean, I don't have that typical story that I started when I was three years old and moved to Montana and fished my whole time, but yeah, we did. We we had a place here on the coast, so it was kind of cool. Got to do salt water and learned to fly fish pretty young. Um, but then that was it. When I got into climbing and ski, and I did not pick up a fly rod again until decades later. Believe it or not, I'm one of those.
1: Okay, so what made what inspired you to get back into fly fishing?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I think I've been asked this, but I think our schedule, being a paramedic and a flight medic we have the best schedule in the world, right? We work 24, we're off 24, work another one. Then we have like four days off, right? So a lot of the things that I was doing, backcountry skiing, climbing, that kind of stuff, you kind of needed a partner, right? And I just needed to find, and you didn't, I didn't want to be out in the backcountry, you know, skiing by myself. So I said, you know what? I, I lived, and I did, I lived in the, the South Platte Valley. So the Arkansas, the South Platte, Spinney, I just lived in this amazing place and still lived there for 10 years where I picked the fly rod back up. And I just started fishing and that was it. Like to the point, not long after I went part time, helped open a fly shop, a local fly shop. It's just a typical cliche that once I started doing it, I just like, holy shit, this is great. (laughs)
1: It's not that typical. I'm obviously frothing at the bit to get into your business here, but <laughs> I need to remember that we need to start with you personally and, and obviously your credentials. So talk to us about high school. So you graduate high school. What are you going to yeah,
2: do? Yeah. So I actually went to boarding school in Virginia, and that's going to become very important in this story. It may it may Woo! jog a little interview you've done before, Um yeah, I went to school with Carter Andrew, okay. so keep that. That's going to come back into play several decades later. <laughs> um, so yeah, went to boarding school and went to boarding school in Virginia. Didn't quite make it to graduation, so I came back home, finished high school back home. Um, dabbled around. I, I went to college for marine technology. I was going after my tonnage captain's license, so sort of the. the 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 writing was on the wall way back then didn't make it because we lived at the beach so if it was chest ahead we were surfing instead of going to class so then went to the mountains went to several colleges in the mountains to try to get away from the coast ended up paddling and climbing that didn't work out came back to the middle of the state did forestry that didn't work out because now i could go either east or west in the state and surf or climb so I just I, can't, I didn't have a foothold. I did not. I got an associate's, I think, in sciences. That that was it. And then I headed out west. I had no clue what I was going to do. Um,
1: out of curiosity, what's the deal with boarding school? Were you sent there for behavior or was it just that there were no decent schools in your area?
2: Yeah, I, it I, not for the the behavior stuff was earlier. They took care of that at another another situation earlier. No, it was just a small mountain town, and my parents just thought maybe I should go to get a better education and I, I don't want to meet different people, which I think the people that I grew up with were fine. But it was it was the best thing on planet Earth, obviously you'll see full circle why it was and who I met and how that worked out decades later.
1: Take me down the path. Walk me through
0: it.
2: Went out west um, to get a foothold, figure out what I was going to do, which ended up being a ski and climbing bum in Colorado. And that, that was good. Um, Didn't fish again, full disclosure. Didn't pick. I don't think I picked up a spinning rod, conventional and or fly rod the entire time prior to moving to Montana, Um, came back to North Carolina because I needed to make some money and painted propane tanks one summer, I think, um, for my brother, and took an EMT class. So here's a pivot. Um, i just doing all this backcountry outdoor stuff. I had taken a a wilderness first aid class and was like, holy shit, this is great. I didn't even know this existed. Um, was back home bored out of my mind, still climbing and doing that, but took an EMT class and was like, wow, this, this is better. If something happens in the back country on the river, it, I kind of think I know what to do at a professional level. I don't even know, but I have more info went back out West that fall, I guess. Um, and you know, this is funny. I take that back. I did pick up a fly rod. We're going to segue for a minute.
1: I love a segue.
2: A bunch of us from North Carolina, we, we lived um, all, there were several groups of folks from North Carolina that were in Boulder, Aspen, Vail, you know how it goes. People move and spread out. We all ended up on a dude ranch um, in Colorado on the Rio Grande, ran right through it. It was a fly fishing ranch, but it was a working you know, they had horses and cattle and people from Denver came to fly fish and ride horses, that, that whole Western scene. I was a ranch hand. Like I cut wood and drove a tractor. I mean, it had nothing to do with fly fishing, but come fall, the guides went back to school. So there were no guides. So they were like, dude, you're, you're gonna, you fish kind of I'm like, well, not really. So, Every morning I would get up and call Durango to the head guy that was back in school and go, all right, dude, what is it that I need to tie on for this dude? What's going on up here? And I would go out and I was a fly fishing guy for like a month and a half. It was great. I had no clue what I was doing, but it was great. Love it. I will not name the ranch because that, that doesn't look good on them, Um so anyway, we all ended up at this ranch, and when the season was over, winter was hit, we were headed to Alaska. Um, one of my good buddies and a couple of people were like, we're going to Alaska. We're going to ski, whatever, mountaineer climb, we're gone. We made it as far as Whitefish, Montana, and there was 900 inches of snow on the ground. And the rest of history. century, we laid down roots, and we were in Whitefish, Doing what? So, again, we were still on the whole ski climbing bomb thing. So worked on the mountain, doing washing dishes, maybe, cooking, uh, whatever, just to be able to ski, to get a ski pass for Big Mountain. But then, because I was an EMT and could ski, actually snowboard at that point, I started ski patrolling, which, again, a pivotal moment because now this medicine is starting to be you know, part of the career, which is great. Ski patrol down in Missoula, um, up on big mountain, um, started working, volunteered for the search and rescue group. So it it was all kind of coming together and I dug it. I love the rescue part of it. You know, the medicine, not so much yet. And then randomly we had gone to Driggs, Idaho to, I went with a friend. I think I was dating this girl. And we went to Driggs to run a um, dog sled operation while the head dude was off racing. And that was amazing. I mean, I, I just, like Oliver says, White, 90% of this is luck. But once you have that luck, you work your ass off to make it work. So she just said, hey, do you, I need some help tending these dogs and Driggs. So went to Driggs, did that for a month. Okay, this is pertinent, I promise. On the way back to Whitefish, a buddy called me or something. I don't know if there were cell phones. I'm old. So somehow stopped in Missoula and said, hey, there is an ambulance service in Polson, Montana, looking for EMTs full time. Okay. Picture this. Carhartt bibs, dog shit in my hair. I had hair down Ew. my back, <laughs> smelled like dogs. had my dog in the truck I stopped in this place because I was like there's not not a chance in hell I walked in and said hey well I'm an EMT I ski patrol I'm fairly new I live up the road and I was hired on the spot and I was a full-time EMT like two weeks later I moved my stuff to Polson lived in the station for people in the business they, they get they'll understand that but lived in a trailer inside the ambulance <laughs> bay, and ran calls non for the next year. It was great. It was trial by fire.
1: So when you were doing ski patrol, did you have to do any sort of crazy rescues? Was it cruisy?
2: Yeah, I mean, again, it, I was um, Missoula and Big Mountain and Whitefish. It's it's not that aggro, right? I mean, there is backcountry, and yeah, I mean, not so much rescues. You got to remember too. I was new to this whole thing. Well, and it was the first time they had um, incorporated a snowboarder-owned ski patrol, and this was in Missoula. So, I was just trying to wrap my head around that as well. So, no, the rescue ski patrolling, not so much, but had an opportunity to start the flight medicine thing when I was in Montana, and our bird was the rescue helicopter for Glacier National Park. So, that's where those doors, I mean, I shouldn't even, as inexperienced as I was and where I was, I should have never had this opportunity, but I, my partner on the ambulance was a full-time flight medic up there and it just worked out. So I kind of got that bug of, you know, the, the death spiral in a helicopter. And that was, that was awesome. So that set the seed for medicine and rescue. I think
1: it was less outdoor based accidents, obviously, and a lot more human inflicted
2: Well, yeah, on the ambulance, because, you know, traditional ambulance service, you run 911 calls, right? So our search and rescue up there, we did. That was the, I don't know, I didn't care about lost people, but, you know, the found people that we needed to go get and haul out of the backcountry, whether it was, you know, snowmobilers, backcountry skiers, that kind of stuff. That's what I really like. But my day job as a, you know, an EMP on an ambulance, I wasn't a paramedic yet. It, that was just 911 calls, oh. in just a normal, you go in, they call 911 because they're sick, injured, or ill, and you go get them. But we were hours from the hospital, so they're through in this whole rural remote medical portion of the of the whole thing.
1: Right. So at that point, are you looking at the stark contrast between the two roles that you're playing and starting to decide that for your future, you'd rather go down one path or the other?
2: Well, no, I pretty much decided that flight medicine, being a, a flight medic on the helicopter as a paramedic, that's exactly what I wanted to do, um, which brought me back to Colorado um, for sure. Again, I just, the the light bulb hadn't gone off with the career as a, a rescue person, like, right, ski patrol, great career. I wasn't good enough, right, and that, You know, could have gone down that path, but I'd already started down the medical side. So I chose flight medicine, came back to Colorado to go back to school. Because, look, if I was going to do this with, this is going to sound so cliche, but look, these are people's lives. And if I was going to do it, being not the most studious individual, I was going to do it right. I was going to go find the best school, the best instructors, learn it. And you know, do the best that I could, eh? all right,
1: so bring me bring me back to the timeline because I interrupted you. You were talking about pivotal moments
2: so when I decided I wanted to do flight medicine for some reason, I believe I couldn't get into a paramedic program within a year or so, and I was ready because if I'd have waited any longer, I would have ended up you know being a graph guide for the rest of my life or whatever but so went back to Colorado, got into the actual program I wanted to get into, which was in Colorado Springs. So it was a Denver program, and if it would have been in Denver, probably wouldn't have done it because I would have lost my friggin' mind living anywhere near Denver. No offense to Denver folks, but it was in Colorado Springs is where the instructors were, and this is for paramedic school. It had nothing to do with flight, but you had to be a paramedic and you had to have experience. So I had to start there. Right. So what packed up everything, I I think I went back, came back home, North Carolina to get my shit together, went back to Colorado since I'd already kind of been there and found a nice little mountain town, which was Woodland park and divide, which I lived for the next 28 years, but went to paramedic school and Finished that. It was about a two-year ordeal, all in. I mean, now I think these kids can go for like four months. I, I don't, I don't understand. Um, but finished up that, and while I was there, again, right place, right time. I got a job at a, another ambulance service in the mountains, and they did do rescues, right? So this small mountain town ambulance service, did the backcountry rescues and all that stuff. So when I finished paramedic school, I was now full-time as a paramedic in Woodland Park with Uprat Ambulance. And that that's where it all started.
1: All right. So tell me what you mean by all started. Let's talk about your business. I think it's fascinating.
2: I had to get experience, right? I mean, period. It's just like in anything you do. I knew I had to put my head down and this was a great place to learn. We were. Pretty far from the hospital, which means y- your medicine had to be dialed, right? It wasn't like downtown Atlanta where you throw somebody in the back of an ambulance and you're at the hospital 1 of p m in like three minutes. I mean, you were actually with patients for hours. So great start, um, and I just did that, and I ran a mountain rescue team during that time period out of divide as well, so started getting that, sort of background, Um, and about five years, don't hold me, people are going to listen to this and say, you moron, it was three years or it was 10 years, I don't know. I was sitting in the front seat of a Denver general ambulance, segue real quick, because we were more mountain, rural, medicine, wilderness, backcountry, we would go to Denver and ride with like the full trauma buses and do shifts there to keep your skills up, right? Because it was a madhouse in downtown Denver back then, right? So uh, it had been like five, five years, I think, six years, five years. I don't remember. Since I've been a paramedic, I'm in the front seat of the same, I've got a bulletproof vest on under my uniform, sweating balls, sitting there going, man, I need to focus. I need to take the next step for either flight or wilderness medicine, one of the two. And the guy I was working with said, hey dude, he was reading like a, a paramedic magazine, like you know, like a fishing magazine for paramedics. And he said, here's a job in Antarctica. They need a paramedic with rescue background. I'm like what? what, I mean, where's that? That's down south, oh, this is amazing. The next morning I called the contractor that had the contract for Antarctica. They were in Denver, go figure. Said, what's the deal? And he said, Yeah, I need a paramedic firefighter in Antarctica for this research station. And when can you go? And I said, Well, what, tomorrow. Three months later, I'm on a plane heading to Antarctica. It was great. Oh my. <laughs>
1: Gosh, wait, how many people were down there? What's it like? I've got a million questions for you and none of them are fly fishing related, but I'm going to ask them anyway. <laughs> how many people live in Antarctica? Does anyone live in Antarctica? Is it the Antarctica? Is it just Antarctica? How many people are there?
2: It's just it's just Antarctica. So, the the quick rundown, I guess, is and I'm going to do the U.S. Work with a ton of Kiwis. They were right beside of us at their research station, a ton of, a ton of Australians. The, the, anyway, so the U.S., it's all peaceful research in Antarctica. Nobody lives there. Nobody has claim of the place. There's just peaceful research, and there's an Antarctic treaty with X amount of countries that participate in research. So the U.S. has three research stations. McMurdo Station, which a bunch of people have heard of, has been in the news off and on a bunch for random reasons. They have one at the south, literally the geographic south pole. And then they have one over on the, I guess, the Chilean side of Antarctica. So you and this is going to come full circle again later on if we keep chatting. But it's on the peninsula of Antarctica, where you access it via Punta Arenas, Chile. <laughs> Again, going to come full circle there. So, it's just research. Um, At McMurdo, in a busy season, non-COVID, I only want to go there, but it's like 1,200 people during the summer months. And it's, I can describe it as a West Virginia coal mining town with a college in the middle, right? So, dorms cafeteria style, um, but they're there to support science, everything from doctors, nurses, paramedics, bulldozer drivers, janitors, construction guys, all there to support like four scientists. I'm kidding, but scientists on the continent.
1: Did you ever have to actually go out and find somebody, this is going to be really dramatic and really grotesque, but did you ever have to find someone who was missing? Or did you have to deal with polar bears? Or was there anything that was just absolutely extraordinary that you had to deal with down there?
2: No, totally. Now, there are no polar bears at the South Pole, April. They're all up north. (laughs) It's funny because that is the number one question people ask for the last 35 years of my life. Um, No polar bears. Yeah, totally. So the way it's set up down there is there is a field um, safety department and they're mountaineers, um, you know, Denali, Everest. I mean, it's incredible. Again, I got thrown into this just like kind of up in Montana. I rolled in and to this day, I just some of the most incredible mountaineers on planet Earth back in the day were there running field safety, and they would go with the scientists out to the field, you know, for crevasse safety. They would test the sea ice. Um, they would do the what we call the cold weather school where everybody had to do it that was going out in the field. So because I was a paramedic with that background at the fire department, I went down to work at the fire department. That did not work out because I'm not a structured <laughs> – you know, be in this incredible place in Antarctica, but now I'm at this, and it was a fire department. I had a fire trucks the whole nine, but it just wasn't, but because of my background, because of just the way the contract was, I was now put on the search and rescue team and field safety with my mountaineering background and being a paramedic. so I did like all three jobs worked in the clinic as well. Hence where I went, met my wife. Right. Um, so you did it all. And yeah, there were, uh, we had, yeah, plane. I mean, I can't, because it's a government contract, I can't be too specific. But yes, there were plane crashes, cravats, falls. There was, and we trained. Oh my gosh, we had helicopters. We had the Coast Guard helicopters. It was like going to the best rescue school on planet Earth, for sure.
1: Got it. Wow. What an experience. So then what happens?
2: What well, <laughs> This is again I'm painting this picture and again there's there's people well above what I do in this world. This just happened to be my little space. Um so all right, yeah, we need to we need to roll along here because this timeline's all over. But Kristen, my <laughs> wife, who was not my wife at the time, same situation. She was in Seattle in the ER doing something. Whatever. She is an emergency medicine PA. Backcountry skier, climber, wilderness medicine background. Same thing, was sitting there going, I need to do something adventurous. Found this job, went down and worked at the research station as the um, you know, an emergency medicine PA at the clinic. But because of their background and search and blah, 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 she was also on the search and rescue team in Antarctica. So we met and... I'm gonna have to segue because it, it, it will tell you how we have our company, not FINS West. We're not even close to that yet. The contract, this whole operation used to be run by the Navy. The VXC six, the United States Navy ran ninety percent of the support. They flew you there, they they had all the medical personnel, all the heavy equipment operate. It was it was government contract, Navy ran it. The year we went down, it had gone civilian. So they were phasing out the military, except to fly us from Christchurch, New Zealand, to get us there. The Air Guard still flies us there, and they were still doing on-continent flights, landing on skier birds out in the field to get us to our camp. Um, but everything else was phasing out. So there was a civilian contractor who had never in their wildest dreams had ever run an operation in Antarctica with 1,200 people in three stations and so forth. So being at the right place at the right time, I think it was the second year we were there, we were helping build the wilderness medicine program, right? So all the expeditions that go out in the field needed to take equipment and medicine and have protocols. And Chris and I, with that background, we were helping both in the summer back in the States in Denver and while we were down there. And I, legal or not, I'm not real sure the ethical thing, but they said, look, if y'all start a company, we will hire you to do this job. And that summer I went To the Secretary of State in downtown Denver and stood there as a 28-year-old going, yeah, lady, I need to start a company to get a government contract, no clue. And three months later, Catabatic Consulting was born, and we've had it for 22 years, the contract.
1: What did you say the consulting company was called?
2: So our parent company, our whatever, main company, whatever you call it, is called Catabatic Consulting and Technical Services. So. Boom, we had it. We were now a government contractor. You know, we did everything right, and it was awesome. And, again, 22 years later, we're there, and we still run. Ironically, we are the EMS coordinators for the fire department that I worked at, you know, 22 years ago. We manage all the pre-hospital folks on the SAR team, the two vessels that are based out of Punta Arenas, Chile, we manage them all. The medical and both those research vessels. It's pretty cool, and it's just two of us. <laughs> it's
1: we're small. Oh my gosh, that's amazing! Are you still active in Antarctica?
2: You mean physically, or yeah, no, that's we still manage the Antarctic wilderness medicine and field medicine program, but we quit going to the continent probably five years ago. It's not in our contract that we have to go. But we we did. I mean, we would go down and and actually work for the program outside of our contract. It was pretty cool. So we'd go down as mountaineers, base camp managers, and obviously the medical people at these field camps. So it was kind of cool. But yeah, look, it's cold there. I'm done.
1: what this is going to make me sound really dumb, but i I have to know I guess I could google it, but i've got you here um What are the animals down there so and why are there no polar bears there
2: no, I can't answer that genetics i don't i don't know that why there's none down there, but there are seals, whales, penguins, birds, so that that's it that are the and tons of like oceaning critters. I mean, they, they do dive expeditions under the ice, which, yeah, no, that's not my jam. No way.
1: The other question that is nagging at me that I just have to ask is, what is the main difference between wilderness medicine and what would you call it?
2: Just standard first aid, standard medicine. Great question. So here's the thing. It's pretty straightforward. Standard, typical first aid courses that you go take with, say, American Heart, the Red Cross, that kind of stuff. They're amazing. They're awesome. But they are specifically designed for quick 911 emergency service access, right? So in other words, shit hits the fan, you know how to take care of it for the first whatever, four, five, eight minutes, but 911 has been called. And then eventually, you know, uh, paramedics, somebody shows up to now take this situation away from you, right? Wilderness is beyond that, right? And again, the standard first aid stuff is great. And I could harp on that for a long time, right? It's awesome. Teaches people what they need to know, but it sort of stops at, okay, we know, we hope, you know, the ambulance, somebody's going to show up within eight, 10 minutes. Wilderness medicine picks up from there. So at the definition of time, I can, I would rather... Give examples rather than time, but wilderness medicine now says, okay, you've done the eight minutes of stuff. There's still shit going on and nobody's coming. What do you do now, you know, for the next 30 minutes, four days, two weeks? What, how do you manage this emergency, this crisis beyond 911, right?
1: What is the most common wilderness issue uh, in your experience? Would it be dehydration? Would it be... You
2: know, it, it's... <laughs> obviously, this gets asked. It's going to be common musculoskeletal issues. So musculoskeletal, right? Twist, sprain, strain. I mean, there's... Right? I mean, it is what it is. Repetitive use injuries, stuff like that. People are skiing, knee injuries, climbers fall. Now there's trauma there. But to be honest, it's, it's really the... It's 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 the strains, sprains, and sort of breaks and fractures, really.
1: How do you fix something like that? And again, we could go down a crazy rabbit hole, so I'm going to be cautious. But just again, nagging curiosity, would you just make sure that you always have a tensor bandage on you? Like, could you fix it with a piece of clothing and a stick? Is there an easy fix for a sprain? Or does that just depend on the (laughs)
2: appearance? yeah. So we, I don't think we can go down that rabbit hole because then now I'm throwing out a, a first aid class on anchored podcast. But here's, here's what I do want to say. Here's how you fix it. You take a course, you know what you're doing. And since it's 2023, you don't need to use a stick in clothing. And, and it's, a, this was a great segue. There are pieces of first aid and medical equipment that the common, I don't know what wilderness first aid, or I don't know, can carry with them to like do the right thing. So people have this misconception of wilderness first aid or EMS is like using burr root to stop bleeding or using two sticks to, but it, it, it is, but it's to teach you the right way to do it let's say, away from, you know, with less equipment, and then you can improvise with what knowledge you now know, right? So we we never, we don't teach splinting with sticks and stuff anymore, because we teach the right way, then you can critically think how to do it with the shit that's laying around you, which you should have some first aid stuff, right?
1: Where would you suggest people take their wilderness course? Because I know I looked into doing one at some point and I was getting so much feedback that it was overwhelming. Is there one course or one organization in particular that you'd recommend for for fly fish or, or for fishermen and women specifically?
2: Well, always it would be Fins West. <laughs> sure. But no, we're, we're very, uh, and that would be a hard thing to do. This is what I would say, unfortunately, in a little bit of history instead of just giving a rote answer, the whole wilderness first aid genre, i guess or or i don't I can't think of the right word, it's not regulated, right in Canada, it actually is a little bit more than down here for sure, and it's unfortunate because. You know, any Joe Bob that, you know, went to Boy Scout training can start a company and say they're doing wilderness first aid. However, there there is a standard.
1: I have to tell you that that's where the confusion was coming in. As I was hearing from Americans and then I had Canadians and Aussies and everybody was weighing in. And it was sounding very confusing about if, you know, if you want to go through and get cert- certified for X, Y, and Z, then this will work and that won't work. And it was so overwhelming that I just took a step back. So I would love for you to dive into this, not only for me selfishly, but for other people who have also been kind of put off by um, all the confusion.
2: Yeah, totally. Uh, there are some reputable companies out there, right? That teach the wilderness first aid. And they are accepted by um, a multitude of organizations, whether it's fishing, rafting, uh, climbing, whatever. And they usually dictate, right? So the organization that you're working for usually has a list or preferred places that you that they will accept. Um, the I think the other way is just the good old-fashioned: go look at the reviews, reach out to folks and I hate to say this because now people are going to reach out to me nonstop, but, you know, look look at the, there's five or six really incredible schools that stick to the standard, have a curriculum, they've been known for a while, Um, and that's Knowles, so WMI, Wilderness Medical Institute, Desert Mountain Medicine here in the States, Wilderness Medical Associates, who we taught for for years, um solo is another great one um remote medicine international rmi used to be i kept up with those guys and then canada i'm not real sure i have talked to a couple of canadian organizations because a, a few of our mountaineers that have certifications in antarctica we have to review them They've gotten them up in Canada. So I've called these people up to see what their curriculum is and done some research. And look, what I've found up in Canada is yeah, they don't mess around. I mean, there's not many hokey wilderness first aid, wilderness medicine companies up there, right?
3: Yeah.
0: Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com.
3: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to Tecovis dot com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: So, talk to me about Finns West before I suggest that everybody bombard you with requests to take your courses. Tell me how you guys ended up moving into Finns West first, and then we could talk about what it is that you guys do there.
2: Yep, totally. Probably, and this is probably the coolest story of this whole thing. I think. You would think that being a guide and doing the wilderness courses, because, again, with our company, Catabatic, we also did these wilderness um, first aid and medical courses, right, but just not in the fishing industry, that I would have come up with this, but I did not. Um, Matter of fact, it took a while even when it was beating me on the head. So randomly, and Denver can't tell you when, it's been eight years, ten years ago, the fly show, maybe on um, the fly fishing rendezvous, one of the trade show fly fishing shows in Denver reached out and said, um, hey, you've got this company that teaches wilderness, you know, first aid, you're a guide. Can you come do a presentation on like first aid for anglers and lodges and stuff? Again, the light bulb did not go off. I just said, holy shit, I'm going to get a free pass to the fly fishing show. This is great. <laughs> so, um, I, I was, uh, and and I think it was because I told Praminski, I believe, I said, look, man, you understand that this is, I'm going to be talking about first aid and medical stuff at a fly fishing show. You're taking a chance. He said, doesn't matter. Let's mix it up. I think it's important. Let's try it. I'm like, all right, cool. So, I just took, you know, having spoke at different medical conferences and stuff, I just took my normal decision to like that the cats trying to jump up. <laughs> so anyway, um, and just put pictures of fishing in there and just sort of dialed it in, you know, for the angler and being on the river and the raft or whatever. And I went in and, listen, the, the place was packed. And I, I had to ask everybody to make sure, hey, um, do y'all know that this is, you know, first aid for the angler? And they're like, yeah, I guess nothing was going on. So I did the presentation, tons of questions. I couldn't believe it. I was like, holy shit, this is pretty cool. No light bulb yet. Um, when I finished, a dude came up and said, introduced himself and said hey look i've been guiding at this lodge in alaska the past 20 years i just bought it i'm a ski patroller here in colorado i get what you're doing can you come up and do a course for my guides and staff and do an emergency action plan for my operation the light bulb went off big time (laughs) good so I'm like, holy cow, sure. And I get to go to Alaska. You know, and I'd been up there, we we did a couple of TV, i V I'm not even gonna go, whatever. I, our other company did some medical and safety standby for a couple of T V shows in Alaska. I would fished up there before, but not like preseason with these guys on the Alagnac. It was it was amazing. And you know, obviously we're used to doing courses in the woods right just we have the stuff so we went up and did it and it was great it was awesome and I, I worried about the guides and staff being engaged and but again I was a guide right I knew what they did I understood the environment I understood their clients and I knew they were fucking in the middle of nowhere Alaska um so that was it that, that hadn't started yet but that's where the idea came from okay Okay, are you ready for this here comes some name dropping and we're coming full (laughs) circle
1: coming hard go for
2: it so so prior to that chris and i had gone to patagonia river ranch in argentina i went down to look at the lodge to do some hosted shit when i was in colorado but while I was there, they found out what we did. We went back there and taught a course several years before this. light bulbs still did not go off back then, right? So I come home, and I'm like, man, I wonder if this is needed. Do people give a shit? I, I don't know. So sitting on my desk were like nine magazines with big boy Carter Andrews face on every one of them. I'm like, you know, I've been seeing Carter on all and I we had sort of lost touch. I mean, I hadn't talked to him in a long time. I sent him an email and said, yo, you know, I mean, randomly, this is Taylor. And we lived in the same dorm his last year. He's older than I am. I said, look, I need to talk to you. Let's chat. And and he we hooked up. I told him what we're doing. He said, Man, I think it's great. It's needed. He said, but I'm going to introduce you. to. said, do you know Oliver White? And I'm like, what, really? And Oliver and I are from the same town. I had no idea, except for the fishing stuff, who Oliver was. I mean, now, with that being said, I live sort of down the valley from Oliver. But I know who he was, except, you know, seeing him blow up in in the fishing industry. I'm like, yeah, no, don't know him. Oddly enough, we live in the same place or did. So he introduces, Oliver said, dude, I'm on board hundred percent. Absolutely. It's needed. And we were booked at Bears and Abaco before we got off the phone. So Fins West was created right then.
1: So how does that look? Then lodges fly you and Chris in and you teach their staff or do you also help to teach the, the clients? Like what, what's the basic protocol as far as hiring you?
2: Yeah. Nope. So we, we come in and it's for the guides and the staff for the lodge. And again, we, we could, we could go down that, this rabbit hole as, as well. So for when we first started, Oliver had the ability for Abaco, I believe. I think there were two clients. So we picked a week. I mean, our, our course is two. Well, for going and doing a lodge, we have a one day for like walkway, to, um, you know, shops that do trips that aren't that remote, but they need this training, but we won't go to the Bahamas and do a one day course. So it's either a two or three day course. So the lodge is just, and with Oliver, it was a great testing thing because he had a couple of clients. So we were like, well, we can do this. I mean, right? We're not this big company that says these courses are from eight to five, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and you have to be there. We just worked around it. And we did a three-day course, and the guides that were guiding that day, we they came in at night, and we set them down, and we called them up. To what, you what know, we're doing. We try to get everybody to be there on day one because it's the most important. It builds on the rest of the course, right?
1: Between Alaska and the Flats, I mean, to me, it just sounds like such a huge difference. Did you have a hard time adjusting or um, is it basically the same class, but just with slight variations?
2: That's it. So it, they're all custom. So there's a huge difference in the guides up on the Alagnac in Bristol Bay than on the Morals in the Bahamas. However, we've done them all. Now that sounds very pretentious. What I mean is, we understand the environment of not anywhere, but we we've, we we've salt-fished. I mean, we've been to lodges. We well, now we're ten years in, so we just we didn't talk about say altitude illness, right, or bears at Abaco, but we also didn't talk about sea urchins and you know salt water. Right well, hypothermia, we did, but you know what i mean we we customize it to the environment that there are and and because we're guides, now, Kristen is not a god, she's just badass, right, so it doesn't matter she <laughs> shouldn't have to be a god, but we're we understand the injuries that they see, you know we know what a polling platform is we we know, but look medicine is medicine no matter where you are. You just have to put these people in the right situation on how to do the medicine where they are, right? Yep.
1: But not all of your classes or not all of your courses are on location. I'm assuming you have courses on location at home. Do you do um, standard classes near where you live or is everything on location?
2: Yeah. So with Catabatic Mountain School, which is the our – Wilderness first aid for catabatic. we used to host courses like we would throw up and say hey we're doing a three-day two-day five-day whatever in the divide area here's where you stay come do it total pain in the ass right um so for the fishing side we did a few but a fly shop would host it so Pete Shop would say, hey, yeah, we'll deal with that. You guys just come in. How much is it per person? You know, we'll have lunch and we'll find somewhere. Well, we, you know, there's plenty of places to do it. But our model is we go to your lodge because that's where you work, right? We do an emergency action plan for your operation, and we will not do one without having feet on the ground to see the operation.
1: Right, right. So how many people, let's say that I want to take one of your courses. How would that work? Would I, is there a list of um upcoming classes on your website? Would I have to call Oliver and say, look, I'm bringing eight people in. Can we do a course? How, how does it work logistically? Or is it not for no, the we, little we guy? Do we have to we be a need- lodge owner to call the book?
2: People are not the little people, but our model is not doing open courses for people to sign up and come from all over. We have been so busy up until COVID, right? COVID, I don't even talk about that. I mean, we just started, we literally just started ramping up last month. I mean, and then it just went crazy, but um, no, Abaco, Bears, You know, we just went to El Pescador at Alley's and went Los Locos. We just went to Baja to do Los Locos. So the lodge hires us to come in for their staff and their folks. I would love for somebody to do a hosted, I mean, it would be amazing. And we've talked about it, but you know, you've hosted before. I don't want to, I've got enough to deal with teaching and getting equipment there than to have to deal with, come fish while you're doing it. But if somebody gets it together, we would totally do it for sure.
1: I've got this fear of missing out going on right now. I, wanna, I want to know. I need to work for a lodge and get all this information. Um, and and you go internationally as well. So my buddies in Canada who own lodges can hire you technically. Is that right?
2: Look, we've been trying to get up to Josh's place for years. But, you know, we ramped up and COVID hit. Yeah, totally. We can we can go matter of fact, I'm gonna say that eighty percent of our lodges are not even in the United States. They are which makes sense. I mean, we do tons, right? We done a ton in Colorado, Firehole, a bunch in Montana, but I don't know, it's just not either at the top of their priority list or they don't consider it to be remote enough, which I wholeheartedly disagree. I consider 45 minutes, an ambulance is not on top of you. That is remote, period. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I would agree. So how does a standard wilderness course differ from one through Fins West that specifically focuses on hunters and anglers?
2: All right. So I'm going to start by saying that it doesn't. In in the big scheme of things, medicine is medicine. Doesn't matter if you take it from our lovely partners at WMA, WMI Solo, AFT up in Canada, it doesn't matter, right? Because medicine's medicine, right? But while we are different and focus on the angling side of things and the hunting side, which again, that's that's a whole other different thing, there's Look, this is a shameless plug, but it's the truth. We get asked this a lot. So we have three criteria that make us no better, but just different and better. One, we are all medical providers, right? There is nobody, and there's only four of us technically that have not that have been doing this for 20 plus years of our career, right? So instead of getting a person that was an outdoor person, right, whatever, hiker, climber, whatever, that went and took a wilderness first aid instructor class to teach the course, which is fine. I mean, I, I'm, I'm saying that there's nothing wrong with that. And there's some providers, right? There are some doctors, nurses, paramedics, EMTs that are instructors for these other companies without a doubt. But when you get us, you're getting a medical provider so we can answer the questions. Our experience is there for, you know, not everything, but a lot of emergencies, both illnesses and trauma. So that's that's one thing. The other thing is, like we said, we're guides. We've been doing it. So we can relate to the guides. We know what they mean when they say they're on the morals or they're on the braids in Alaska. We know what a drift boat is. We've got drift boats. We know what a flat boat is. We own flat boats. So you take a group of people that may or may not be just focused and trumping at the bit because they have to take a first aid, and you throw people in front of them that are actually talking to them, not at them, right? Yep.
1: Yep, that makes sense.
2: Um. So that... And then the other thing that's kind of cool is we're all certified licensed educators, right? So we have had to go through the process to teach, not this, but in Colorado is where we did it, to teach medicine to paramedics, doctors, nurses. So we've been taught how to teach. So, you know, there's a process to be able to target people who are more visual, more hands-on, we incorporate all that into the courses to try to, you know, reach, reach everybody.
1: When it comes to teaching Oliver's staff in the Bahamas or the staff in Alaska, were there any notable differences or major differences in what you were teaching or was the curriculum pretty much the same?
2: Yeah, so one thing to add is medicine's medicine. Doesn't matter if you're on the moon or you're at Oliver's Place or you're up on the Alagnac in Alaska, right? It's just the environment that you're in. So obviously, we we don't focus on um, sea urchins and coral cuts on the bottom of your foot in Alaska. Just like in the Bahamas, we don't talk about bear attacks right? Um, that kind of stuff. So the medicine is sort of the same. We just we just dial in what environment they're in. So we teach the same medicine, but we just try to relate to where they are and what injuries or illnesses. And some are the same, of course. So yeah.
1: Was there something in particular that was a big aha moment between the guides in Alaska and the guides in the Bahamas? Was there any sort of uh, process or any sort of technique that really had everybody go, oh my gosh, how have I been guiding for 20 years and not knowing this?
2: Yeah, I don't think it's so much about a technique um, like splinting or opening an airway or something like that. I think it's the process of managing an emergency, right? When the shit hits the fan, there's a lot going on. And, And particularly for guides, their clients, they have a boat, they're on the river, they're on a, they're on a flat. They have a lot of things to manage to include the emergency. So I think the, the biggest, I guess, uh aha or or learning moment is the process on how to critically think and manage that. And it's, it's like a, it's a three-step process that we teach all of them. It's exactly the same on how to manage first the scene, then the life threats, the shit that will kill you. You can't move on until that's fixed. And then the third is sort of the more focused and detailed treatment and assessment. And I think once you teach that and practice that through our scenarios, it all kind of comes together. They can take a deep breath focus that, you know, they have a process instead of all over the place trying to figure out what to do first. I think that's the critical aha moment for most of these folks.
1: So is there a blanket process that you can share or is it always specific to a certain situation?
2: Yep. No, it's the same. And you know, it's very similar to traditional pre-hospital ENT paramedic. We just put it into more simplified terms and it, it was those three things I just said. The first triangle that we teach is the, the scene assessment, right, is to assess the scene, make sure everybody other than the patient and the patient is safe, how many people are there, that kind of stuff. Now, that becomes specific for, say, a flat guide, and examples are pretty, pretty um, straightforward, but it makes them think. The prop's not turning. The boat's not drifting. Anchor the boat before you do anything. That keeps everybody else safe and then focus. In Alaska, you know, at bears. They, are there bears? Which They all know this. We're not teaching them this shit. It's just putting it into, a, okay, you want me to drop the anchor on the drift boat before I go up and say stop bleeding. Absolutely. You can't try to treat somebody with a drift boat bouncing off stuff. Common sense, but once you repetitively do those scenarios with the scene and then treatment, it all comes together for folks.
1: Right. Okay. So that's the first. And then what's the second thing? So you're assessing what's number two. Yeah.
2: So that's the scene assessment, right, is safety, how many people, what's going on. The next one is life threats, right? So you've got to find life threats and fix them fast. And again, this is the shit that will kill somebody. So we break that down. There's only three body systems that'll do it, and that's respiratory, circulatory, and neuro neurological. So again, respiratory is breathing in your airway. Circulatory is or well, your heart pumping, right? And that's pretty easy. If not, you do CPR. And then the other one is bleeding, which is the big one, right? I mean, you've got to stop severe bleeding, and Another aha moment is how to do that appropriately, right? There's so many YouTube scenes and magazine articles about how to effectively stop severe bleeding we teach the medically correct way, right? And there's a system there too, right? Try to manage it without a tourniquet if you can um, with well-aimed direct pressure, and there's a process there. If that doesn't work, you're going to have to throw a tourniquet on and then, then what, right? Because again, that's where that full circle the standard um, first aid. Put a tourniquet on. The medics are going to show up. You put a tourniquet on in a drift boat in the middle of a lag night or a jet boat. M- man, you got another forty-five minutes to. to what do we do now? So that now carries it. And then the third is neurological, right? And that's a head injury. Or any kind of change for a medical problem, such as a stroke, right? Any kind of change in their personality, that kind of stuff. They need to find out what it is, if it's a life threat, such as a stroke or a hand injury, how to assess that and figure out bad or not bad, right?
1: Is there a common injury or occurrence that you found in speaking with guide experiences Like, is it usually drowning? I'm assuming it's not something like stingrays. Is it it a heart attack? Is there, in hearing all the guide stories, is there a common occurrence?
2: Yeah. uh, you, you, You know, in our spreadsheet, when we do these things, we're like, holy cow, this has happened here 20 times kind of thing. Not really. Again, I would say that environmental are big ones so hypothermia cold and hyperthermia heat exhaustion heat stroke especially in the tropic scenario and then say in alaska it may be the cold and the reason is it's very subtle can be corrected right and another big thing and not just our courses but in wilderness medicine is general in general, is the recognition that something is headed down the wrong way. Because if you catch it early, then it doesn't become a problem. Because shit in the backcountry or remote, a very small problem. And, and I'm going to be facetious, but it's true. A cut on the bottom of your foot, if not taken care of, it ends your trip. It, two days later, it's infected and... So it's the little things that you recognize to take care of now so it doesn't become a big problem. So recognition is a big part of the course where we do talk about medical issues. They may not be able to do anything about a stroke, but they can recognize that, holy shit, this may be a stroke, rods in, motors down, we're out, we're gone now. Instead of, oh, I wonder what this is, should we fish some more? It's like, yeah, no. We call it the red button, and it's become quite a tagline at the lodges. Like, we're going to make shirts. When stuff like that happens, we say, hit the red button. You, you can't do much. You've recognized it. Hit the red button. You're out.
1: I like it. I like it. What about packing? Obviously, it's actually always surprised me how all my buddies who hunt tend to pack not necessarily full first aid kits, but they always have in the back of their mind that something could happen. My buddies who ski and snowboard, same thing. But my buddies who fish, they're packing eight weights and floating lines. I noticed that they seem to leave a lot of their precautionary stuff out of their packing. Is there something they, or a few things that you would recommend all of us bring on a trip?
2: So, April, that's a loaded question because I rarely, I mean, I do give a list of what to bring, right? Because there are some basic first aid items, especially the stuff that could stop severe bleeding, that could manage an airway, that needs to be in every kit. But what I find is when we give people a list, and here I go, here comes the soapbox portion of the the podcast. If you give somebody a list, they go out and buy or they buy a kit with that stuff in it. And then they put it in their pack. And the question that always is, do you even know how to use it? So I will tell you one item that everybody needs to carry, period. And then I'll talk about something else. That is a tourniquet, and you've got to know how to use it, period. Right? Um, it's, it it could save a life in a heartbeat. They're easy. They're cheap. You just got to know how to use it. Um, and then this is what I say about what to pack and what to take. Your first aid kit is only as good as your knowledge and how to use the thing. So you take a course and you put what you've learned to treat and take care of in your first aid kit that's better than any list that I can give. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, that makes sense.
2: I mean, yeah. And again, we get asked this a lot. And granted we get paid to tell people what to build in their kit, but for general discussion, you know, there's lists, you can go online and look at a list. Um, most of the locations that you go to, except for, you know, random stuff for the tropics or random stuff for say Alaska or the Rockies in Canada, are gonna change. Everything else sort of remains the same. The biggest, I think, take home for a kit is that, A, you know how to use it first, and if you know, if you've taken a course and you have some basic first aid, you're gonna know what to put in your kit. The next thing is, like, I'm trying to think how to word this appropriately. There's not one first aid kit that is appropriate for every trip or river or expedition that you take. I'm not saying you have to have 15 kits, but I mean, common sense will tell you that the little sort of micro kit that you're going to use on your local river, because you do know that within a certain amount of time, an ambulance can show up or you can get somebody to the car and so forth is not the same kit you're going to take to the Seychelles or to remote Alaska. So that's kind of the big thing is to know that there's not one kit that's good for for everything, right?
1: Um, well, look, I think that's sound advice. It's obviously not what many of us want to hear. We want to hear that if we go to the shop down the road, we can buy a 10.99 kit and throw it in our bag and be experts. But, um, but it's, I like that it's that you're realistic. So what about learning a lot of these skills online? Do we just hop onto YouTube and Google how to use a, a tourniquet? Do, do you do any zoom or online courses?
2: No. Um, again, I am, and I'll have to bring up COVID and I hate it to say that I do because, you know, it was bad and we're trying to put it behind us. That was the only time that we've considered doing some type of medical or first aid online because you couldn't get it. You couldn't go in person. There were guys at lodges that that needed it. They were going to expire. And here's the thing. The I don't believe an in online initial first aid training at all. You have got to put your hands on it. You've got to do scenarios. You've got to smell it, scratch it, see it. Because what it's doing is it is, it's a mental snapshot in your head, right? So when something happens, you may have just done it in a scenario using say moolahs. It wasn't the real thing, but you've gone through it. When the real thing happens, you're not grasping at straws. There is something in your head that you've touched it, done it, been taught. I think that if you get a new piece of equipment, you've been taught how to use things, and you're like, ooh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure about this tourniquet. I've not ever used it. You go look and see how to use that particular one. They're not that far apart from one another. But I think going on YouTube and trying to learn first aid, And this is a good segue. It's like going on YouTube at the river with a brand new fly ride, real line and fly, and expecting to catch a big fish on your second cast. I don't expect anybody to do appropriate first aid after cruising YouTube on a Saturday night.
1: Yeah, that's fair. That's absolutely fair. So how can lodges reach out to you and Chris to hire you? just by going through the website. And this is your chance to do your shameless plug, by the way. So go for it.
2: Right on. It's not a shameless plug. It's pretty straightforward. We are at FinsWest.com. F-I-N-N-S-W-E-S-T. And there we are. Give us a holler. Shoot us an email. Um, yeah. And and again, I think for the shameless plug, and, and I appreciate the, the questions that you've asked. I love this to get the information you know, about safety and and stuff and first aid. But the other difference about Fins West is we do work with lodges. I I can't think of a time we've come into a lodge and done a class from eight to five for three straight days. All the guys are there. And then, you know, at five, we're eating dinner and we're done. We get it. We understand how lodges work. We know that they're you know, they may have clients, there's things that need to happen. And that's what we do. We come in and blast the first day, there may be guides out the second day, we'll pick up the third day. That's the one difference is we do work with lodges because it's hard. I mean, there's some lodges that cannot get us there, especially now, because they're rolling seven days a week, damn nine months out of the year. So
1: yeah, I was wondering that. You know, I really wanted to learn more about you and just get a general idea on what Finns West uh, does, but we're going to start to wrap it up. There are going to be 10 million questions thrown your way. I have no doubt. Is there anything in particular that you'd like to address that you think might come up later or just anything you wanted to add in general?
2: Um, you know, yeah, just to, for just a, uh, an ending thought for folks that have heard this thing is one is you don't have to take a wilderness first aid course. Take anything, just take something that's appropriate, that teaches you some basic first aid, so you're just not out there, you know, throwing darts in the wind, right? I mean, a a regular standard first aid class is a great start if you're not gonna take, you know, something more appropriate for your environment, right? Um, Have a plan, no matter what you're doing, and I'm talking about on the medical side. It doesn't have to be like we do, like a 10 page emergency action plan, just wherever you are, you're taking a trip, you're on the river, you're on a flat boat, have some plan. When something goes down, know where your kid is, where you're going to go, and how you're going to handle a situation so it doesn't just take you by surprise, right? Um, for sure. Now, as far as first aid kits, I want to wrap up with this without a doubt. you got to know how to use what's in your kit, or you might as well carry a Ziploc bag with Band-Aids in it, right? So have an appropriate kit, know how to use it for sure. You're gonna get what you pay for. So if you buy a $12 first aid kit, you're gonna end up with a $12 first aid kit. Spend some money and get a good kit, right? Not every kit is perfect off the shelf, even ours, right? Even our Conterra kits that we designed specifically for this this situation. You still have to personalize it. You still have to look at it, see where you are, see where you're going, and personalize the thing, right? Not every kit is right for every situation. We chatted about that for sure. And then don't forget about what your supplies are carried in. I think that's one of the most important things. You get a cheap kit, you're going to get a cheap bag, right? So get a bomber kit construction-wise, right? Does that make sense? So good zippers, good stitching, a good quality bag, because you're going to take this thing everywhere. And if it blows up during an emergency, man, you're six steps behind in this situation already, for sure. Organize it, too. So when the shit does hit the fan, you're not digging into a dry bag trying to find something that may save a life. When you open it, everything should be right in front of you, quick grab get the right stuff and then my final thing is just don't be stupid right
1: sound advice easier said than done um, as far as bags go is there one in particular that you recommend what about like a camera bag
2: well i mean of course uh, our conterra kits are great take a look at them right again they're they're you're gonna have to dial it in personally but we the conterra makes the best bag i'm not talking about stuff in it but the best bag on the market we've been making ems bags for professional flight, ground fire for 40 years. So that's a good start for sure. But there's some great kits out there. There are some actually these days, some good kits, but you just got to know what it is you're looking for, right? Take a course, know what you need and really look at what comes in a kit.
1: Well, I will link everything up here. Before we wrap it up, is there anything you would like to add or to ask me?
2: I think we're good. Thanks. Uh, Thank you, April, for... Doing this, again, it's often overlooked, and we know that because we do it for a living in the fishing industry. So I appreciate you letting me babble for, it seems like, the last 19 hours um, talking about first aid, not not myself, but just some things for people to think about. I certainly do appreciate it.
1: Ah, the pleasure is mine. So thank you so much. Don't hang up. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in over the next few weeks as I sit down with George Daniels, Ann Miller, and more.